Hey everybody, come on over here. It's the Northern Miner Podcast. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. This is episode 99. I'm your host, John Cumming. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, today I'm uh, at my kitchen table. I'm looking out over the frozen city. There's been a uh, ice storm, so the city's pretty quiet. My uh, MMA school was shut down, so even the uh, cage fighters are not going outside these days. <laughs> and uh, so the focus today is going to be base metals. There's just been so much going on in the base metals market so we're going to take a little tour through that we'll, we'll start with some iron ore news copper zinc and uh going to spend quite a bit of time on the wild uh, aluminum market which has gone crazy the past week with the uh, sanctions imposed on Russell by the united states and uh we'll also um i'm going to review trading on the tsx and tsx venture exchange over the past month and uh, a couple days ago, we recorded a segment with uh, Richard Quarisa, our staff writer. So he'll uh, pop in with a Rick's Picks episode. Let's just set the table here. I have an article by Pradesh Narayanan from Bloomberg. The, they quote from an April 12th note from Goldman Sachs talking about bank analyst Jeffrey Curry, who doubled down on their overweight recommendation. They reiterated a view that commodities will yield returns of 10% over the next 12 months. And a lot of that is being led by crude, of course. They describe it as being poised for its strongest rally since 1987. Of course, that's been um, driven by uh, the events in uh, Syria and the ongoing war between uh, Yemen and Saudi Arabia. And one of the quotes here from Goldman Sachs is, uh, with low cross-asset correlations, increasing inflationary risks, a positive carry and the potential for supply disruptions in oil from the Middle East, the strategic case for owning commodities has rarely been stronger. Just looking at oil, what we see is a 7.8% rise in Brent crude uh, this past week, and then West Texas Intermediate is up 8.6%, and it's now at uh, 67.38 a barrel. So oil prices are very strong. Goldman Sachs also says, with low and declining inventories, the market remains vulnerable to even small disruptions. And they're talking about the oil market. One thing they do point out is that with John Bolton being appointed uh, National Security Advisor to President Trump in the U.S., and then uh, Mike Pompeo is going through the nomination process for the new Secretary of State, and they're both very vocal Iran hawks, so there is a chance that there will be renewed uh, sanctions on Iran oil. So that's also been pushing up oil quite a bit. Now let's uh, give a bit of thanks here for our podcast sponsors. We have Joe Grasso Group, led by Joe Grasso out in Vancouver, and that is comprised three junior companies. They're mainly involved in Argentina, and the companies are Blue Sky Uranium, involved in uranium, Golden Arrow Resources, a lot of precious metals assets there, and then Argentina Lithium and Energy, and uh, Argentina Lithium and Energy they're up in the uh, lithium triangle, which is up in the northwest corner, divided between the three countries there. 
and that lithium triangle holds well over half the uh, total lithium resources in the world. So Argentina Lithium has a great position in that uh, triangle. And our second podcast sponsor is the Yukon Mining Alliance. They're a group of 17 exploration companies and uh, one major producer up in the Yukon. One event they have coming up, uh, this is hosted by the government of Yukon. They're coming to Toronto for a Yukon mining investment uh, luncheon and forum. And the premier of the Yukon, Sandy Silver, new, new premier, will be on hand giving a presentation, as will the Minister of Economic Development and the Minister of Energy, Mines, and Resources. Quite a plate for him. That's uh, Ranch Pillai. So there'll be um, talks by those two and panels, and uh, the Yukon Mine Alliance is associated with that event. So that will be May 30th in Toronto. And another little bit of news from one of the members of the Yukon Mine Alliance is that uh, Luxco Resources has brought in uh, Karen McMaster as a new director. The Luxco, they own 100% of the high-grade Kino Hill uh, Historic Silver District there. Now the first base metal we're going to deal with here is iron ore. A bit of good news for Canadian iron ore development, and that is, well, quite a, quite a contrast to the, what's going on out west with the provinces of B.C. and Alberta bickering over pipelines, uh, which is uh, very unfortunate. What we have here between Quebec and the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, we had on April 12th in Quebec City, the uh, Quebec Premier Philip Couillard, he hosted the Newfoundland and Labrador Premier Dwight Ball, and they agreed to uh, partner to develop the Labrador Trough, which is, you know, of course, full with uh, iron ore and some other minerals, and to enhance the road infrastructure into that area. So it's been a little quiet there during the downturn, but it's picking up again in the Labrador Trough. The specific areas where they're agreeing to collaborate are in geotechnical information and land use planning, infrastructure for the mining sector, labor and skills, telecommunications development, enhancements to government processes and business supports. You know, if you follow Canadian politics, the, those two provinces have bickered themselves in the past over uh, energy um, policy and rates and things like that with the hydro development between the two provinces. So uh, this is a great sign of the uh, pro-business uh, side of things uh, in mining in the Labrador Trough between the two provinces. So some specific commitments from Quebec. A lot of it is road-based at the moment. This is continuing the uh, construction work on Route 138. That's the one that goes up along the, hugs the, sh the north shore of Quebec. It can just be continued. Uh, it kind of ends as it approaches Labrador there. And then improving Route 389, that goes up near, uh, uh, more directly northwards towards uh, Labrador. You have the Quebec budget earmarked. $238 million for extending Route 138 under the Plan Nord. That's the uh, large multi-decade plan that the Quebec government has to uh, build infrastructure in the north. A lot of that's related to hydro development, but it also relates to mining and uh, forestry and uh, just bringing services to the population up there. Just as an aside, we're going to be hosting the Quebec minister in our London Mining Symposium, so the topic of a talk that I'm going to be uh, moderating is going to be the Plan Nord. So I'll learn more about that and uh, probably in interview the minister and, or something like that and have some more to say about this new phase in uh, Plan Nord. So, you know, a lot of governments come up with vague plans, but uh, the Plan Nord, they're definitely committing dollars to it. And So on, on the uh, Labrador side, their commitment is to 
improve Route 510. That's the, um, I believe that's the Trans-Labrador Highway, the main highway that uh, goes through that area there. And then they recently finished a pre-feasibility study on a fixed link between Labrador and the island of Newfoundland. I know that's been a long-held dream, a bit like the Channel or something like that, between France and England. I'm not quite sure what the status is on the fixed link, but it's, it's uh, on the table, maybe in the longer term. Now, of course, not everyone's happy at this classic Canadian <laughs> politics. You have the Innu, a couple of tribes here commenting on this agreement, and uh, we've got Chief Mike McKenzie. He's one of, a chief of one of the local Innu tribes there. His quote is, Quebec and Newfoundland continue to live in a bygone era, one in which they believe it is still possible to disregard First Nations on their own territories. Uh, they note that they are continuing to pursue a $900 million lawsuit against the Iron Ore Company of Canada, the mining company up in Labrador there. That's uh, majority owned by Rio Tinto. And this case is currently pending before the Supreme Court of Canada. The question there is whether Quebec's courts have jurisdiction over the whole suit, because uh, often First Nations issues are directly with the federal government. So here's a quote from the Inuit chief, Mackenzie. Uh, What is most bothersome and harmful is that yesterday's announcement completely ignores the legal conflict. We are not opposed to responsible development so long as the companies seeking to operate on our territory are willing to respect our rights, our Mother Earth, and our traditions. Now, let's just take a little break, and we'll come back with a look at metal prices. Welcome back to the Northern Miner Podcast with John Cumming here. Now let's take a look at metal prices. As I was saying, all the action has been in base metals this past week, so we'll just skip through gold and uh, the other precious metals. We've got gold at 13.45. It was a little higher than that earlier in the week, but it has had, uh, as you can imagine, reactions to the geopolitical tensions going on. Silver is at 16.63 an ounce. Platinum, 9.29. Palladium has gone up about $20 to 982 because of concerns about supplies coming out of Russia with these new sanctions. Heading over into base metals on a per-pound basis, you've got copper popped up back above $3 a pound. It's at 308 Nickel is at 631 Aluminum is at $1.02 on a per-pound basis. Zinc is at $1.41, and lead is at $1.00. Oh, five. Now, zinc, sad to say, has had such a good run, and a lot of people kind of sense this, that it's had a good run, and maybe it's time for another metal to take over. But uh, what we saw in March was that the cash price dropped 5.6% month over month. If you look at the two-year chart for zinc, it looks fantastic, and now it's uh, come off sharply. It's continued to decline quite a bit in uh, April as well. So we may have seen the end of the zinc rally, sadly. And uh, but it was a good ride. You know the old joke is that you know once every ten years zinc has a positive year. You know I, I always think back. Oh, so many years ago it was when the Tech and Cominco merged, and the uh, the conference call of the merger and the 
the head of Kaminko was saying, you, you just can't run a company just on zinc alone. It's too difficult. So, And that was when they had the red dog deposit, which is so rich. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a, it's a tough road to hoe to be a zinc miner. So it's getting a little tougher again this past month. Uh, what you're seeing is an easing of tightness in the concentrate and refined, refined zinc markets. And some of this constrained supply is being cleared. You've got the commissioning of MMG Limited's Dugald Mine in uh, November 2017. That's in Australia. Glencore is going to restart its Lady Loretta Mine later in this year, uh, or maybe in, the, maybe in the next few months. And then uh, New Century Mining, or sorry, New Century Resources, Century Mine, is going to restart later this year. So you've got some supply coming on board. Zinc's off a bit. Now, it's been, uh, if you're following the copper market closely, this is uh, always the biggest week of the year for copper people. They all head down to Santiago, Chile, and it's the SESCO week. If you're wondering what SESCO stands for, uh, it's from Spanish, and uh, here's my Spanish accent, the Centro de Estudios del Cobre y la Minería. And in English, that's the Center for Copper and Mining Studies. And that's a local Chilean group that's promoting uh, copper mining within Chile. So it's a nonprofit organization. It really is Chile-focused, but at the same time, you've got Crew, the big um, metal consultancy firm out of England. Uh, they have their World Copper Conference, so they hold it simultaneously. So uh, it's their 17th year this year, I believe. What they do is they combine them together, and they call the whole thing Sesco Week. So if you're reading about Sesco Week, some of it is specifically from a Sesco event, like the Sesco dinner, some of it is from the Crew uh, World Copper Conference, and sometimes it gets uh, mixed up there. But uh, this is something we published in our own paper. It was from the International Copper Study Group, ICSG, and they put out stats all the time, which is uh, very handy. And this was the headline number here, that world mine production of copper in 2017 declined by about 2% with concentrate production declining by 1.6%, and solvent extraction and electro winning, that's SXCW, by 3%. A lot of that decline came in the first half of the year, 4% decline the first half of the year, and that was supply constraints. You had the strike at Escondida mine, and uh, lower output generally from Cadelco in Chile. And then uh, you had the Indonesian concentrate uh, production ban, or... It was temporary from January to April. So some of these things were um, temporary. The copper's coming back, but um, overall, it looks like copper is hitting that peak copper moment. People are tending to believe it'll be 2019, 2020, which we may finally uh, peak with the copper production worldwide is these massive, massive mines that have been built. Uh, they get deeper and lower grade and you have water usage constraints in Chile, of course, with the aridity. And these SXCW uh, projects are developed in age. So uh, now at the Sesco conference, you had from Rio Tinto, Arnaud Suara, if I'm saying that correctly, Arnaud. He's the chief executive of the Copper and Diamonds Division of Rio Tinto. And he said that the outlook for copper is positive. There's tightening supply and solid demands are combining to produce a positive pricing environment. And to the extent we can see out over the horizon, we anticipate global market supply and demand will, or will be close to balance in 2019 and 2020 
at which point the market will slide into a supply deficit as we move into the 2020s. Someone that agrees with that is crew itself. They kind of show the same supply, gla- supply gap developing in uh, 2019, 2020, 2021. BMO also pretty much agrees with that. Supply crunch will become much more real in 2019. We're kind of hitting peak. We've hit peak oil, maybe? <laughs> I'm not sure. But uh, we've hit kind of hit peak gold, and now we're maybe a year or two or three away from peak copper. It usually takes a little bit longer than people expect because prices rise and new ore becomes economic just by the price rise. Now here's a little trivia if you want to think for a moment. Who are the top five copper producers in the world? Number one is obvious for everyone, but uh, if you can think of the other four. Number one is Codelco, of course, the uh, Chilean government-owned giant. Uh, Number two, Freeport. Number three is Glencore. Number four, Grupo Mexico. Number five, BHP Billiton. And rounding out the top ten are First Quantum Minerals, Antofagasta, Rio Tinto, MMG, and Valle. This is from a Metal Bulletin article here. They interviewed the chairman of Codelco, Oscar, if I'm saying this right, Oscar Landerecce. Had some interesting things to say about lithium. Codelco is obviously the copper giant, but they seem to confirm that they will play a small role in the lithium market, and Codelco has no plans to compete with some of the world's giants in the lithium field. But at the same time, Oscar said, um, I really do buy into the electrical revolution. I'm not sure I have a position on the timing, but it's coming. It's obvious it's going to happen. He calls it inevitable, and electromobility is the thing of the future. And here's another copper... It's not real news, but it's it's uh, an interesting aspect of the NAFTA negotiations, which are going on right now between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. One of the things with the auto parts in the NAFTA deal is the auto parts have to be specified their country of origin, and it's all tallied up and has to be balanced out as these cars and parts move between the countries. And one gap in the NAFTA agreement dealing with automobiles is the raw materials don't have to be denoted their country of origin. So the Trump administration really wants this changed and they want the steel in the cars and the aluminum in the cars to have their country of origin specified, which would be great for, uh, of course, domestic uh, steel makers and aluminum uh, refiners in all three countries. And the person who brought this up here is Daniel McGrorty writing in The Hill. And it looks like he's a uh, lobbyist uh, with the American Resource Policy Network. Talks about um, that copper should be included within the raw materials in the car building as well. There's so much copper in these cars, especially as uh, electrification increases with uh, electric vehicles. So we'll see if that happens. That would be good, naturally, for uh, copper producers in all three countries. And now let's take a break, and I'm going to come back with a review of uh, the past month's trading in Canada with mining stocks. And welcome back to the Northern Miner Podcast. Let's take a look at trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange in March. We have all the data in fresh, 
and uh, we're just specifically looking at the mining stocks over the past month. The most actively trading stocks in March were First Quantum Minerals, Barrick Gold, Kinross Gold, B2 Gold, Eldorado Gold. The largest percentage price change, number one, I think you could all guess this if you follow closely, is Klondex Mines, which rose 74% uh, with their takeover um, bid for them. You also have Corvus Gold, up 37%. On the downside, uh, Balmoral Resources, active in Quebec, down 36%. And another gainer, up a third, was Gold Group Mining. Let's take a look at the short positions in mining stocks. The largest short positions in mining stocks in March were pretty much the same uh, from February. Here it's Eldorado Gold, Ivanhoe Mines, they're Class A shares, and Sandstorm Gold. And the largest positive change was Eldorado Gold. Looking through some of the delistings and things, we have Rio Novo Gold was delisted because of their takeover by Aura Minerals. That's the uh, Brazilian stuff going on down there. This list here, we have the top 20 domestic market cap companies. And I just thought this was interesting because there isn't a single mining company in the top 20 uh, <laughs> companies in Canada by market cap. So that's another sign that uh, although things are improving, we still have a way to go before uh, we start seeing the mining companies back on the uh, top 20 list even. And some of the new financing highlights, three of them stand out here. International Tower Hill Mines, they raised $50 million. Rubicon Minerals raised uh, almost $11 million. And then $10 million was raised by Orin Resources. These were all in March. That's kind of uh, small potatoes compared to earlier this year. You know, Oro Cobre raised $233 million. Share raised $132 million. Nevada Copper, $128 million. So people are still raising money on the TSX, but... For miners, it's been a little quieter than earlier in the year. Let's move on to the TSX Venture Exchange. It's uh, always so interesting. There's so much going on in the TSX Venture with uh, you know, blockchain technology and marijuana companies and uh, other ventures. But mining still completely dominates here uh, in terms of number of companies with the TSX Venture and the NEX, the very, very junior board there. 57% of companies, that's 1,129, are mining companies. So the TSX Venture Exchange is still uh, pretty much a mining exchange. Possibly the biggest news in terms of changes there was uh, there was an IPO of, uh, it's only $2 million here, Pacific Empire Minerals was maybe the biggest IPO of March on the TSX Venture. Pacific Empire Minerals, they're in Vancouver, and they describe themselves as a prospect generator type model, but they do have a property. It's called the Wildcat Project. That's uh, claims in the Omanika Mining District of BC. So on the trade end of things, on the Junior Exchange, Novo Resources, they're the ones with the uh, Paleoplacer or whatever it is, uh, Paleoplacer in Australia. That was the most heavily uh, traded mining stock on the Junior Exchange. Some of the largest increases by percent were NV Gold, Goldex, Avidian Gold, and Mineral Mountain Resources. And on the downside, the biggest losers of the month were Aaron Ventures and Viva Gold. If you're looking through the private placements in March, it was it was tremendous. There's like um, three and a half pages of private placements. So all these juniors are raising uh, hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars. So it's going to be a very active year in the junior exchange. Another new listing 
is uh, Murchison Minerals, ticker MUR. They're uh, into copper and zinc. Just looking through some of the name changes, and uh, this is something Richard Quarisa wrote about. Pete Resources uh, changed his name to Cobalt Blockchain, so they're using, well, we'll see if it works, but they're using uh, blockchain technology to try to trace uh, artisanal mining, artisanally mined cobalt out of the DRC. And Soleil Capital changed its name to Goldplay Exploration. Oriana Resources is now called Hut 8 Mining. And Canadian Zeolite is now called International Zeolite. Manson Creek Resources is now called Jade Leader Corp. A couple more name changes here. Plateau Uranium is now Plateau Energy Metals. Rockridge Gold is Rockridge Resources. And Abe Resources is a new company called Vision Lithium Inc., some of the delistings here, Lithium X Energy, because of their takeover. Uh, Meadow Bay Gold is now going to trade on the CSE. And Pine Point Mining was being delisted because of their uh, takeover by Osisco Metals. They're up in the Arctic there. Now let's bring in Richard Quarisa, and uh, we'll have a Rick's Pick segment. joined by our staff writer, Richard Quarisa, here to tell us, uh, Richard, what's your latest Rick's Picks uh, selections for this week? Well, John, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, This week, we're going to start off on the Toronto Stock Exchange with a company called Torex Gold. Uh, Shares of Torex Gold rose $3.66 to $11.57 just the other week. Uh, The company's had a bit of labor drama over the past several months, though. Uh, on November 20th, 2017, workers formed a blockade around the main gate and demand a change in labor union to the Los Mineros Union at the company's El Limon Gold Pit. Uh, the company suspended mining operations until January when the Guerrero state government removed the, the, the blockade. Now, things seemed back on track after that until it was reported that people connected with the union were actually attacking mine staff on their way to the pit. Uh, As a result, work was once again suspended. However, earlier this month, the company said it was able to negotiate a resolution and everything appears to be back on track. So it'll be interesting to see if there's any more tension going on at that project down the line. Right. It's... It's always very difficult for us to cover uh, labor problems in Mexico and Central America There's, uh, with the language barriers and uh, the politics is pretty crazy. So you can literally hire protesters in Mexico. So can you, uh, That's crazy, really? <laughs> yeah, you, you never know what's going on exactly. But uh, anyway, well, it's good to know with Torex. And uh, number two? Number two, we're going to the Venture Stock Exchange with a little company called Canyon Copper. Shares of Canyon Copper rose to $0.17 during the first week of April. Since then, they've cooled a bit, but I think it's kind of a good indication of the kind of excitement the company could drum up in the near future. The company recently doubled its claim holdings in Saskatchewan by staking another 36.5 square kilometers across eight claim blocks at its Bootleg Lake Gold property near Creighton, 
that increases the overall size of the project to 72.8 square kilometers. Canyon is actually drilling four holes in bootleg right now to test what it's calling high priority targets. Now on top of that, uh, in early March, Canyon Copper sold its Moonlight Copper property down in California to a company called Crown Mining. The property now forms Crown's Moonlight Superior Copper Project, which has more than 2 billion pounds of copper across the indicated and inferred categories. Uh, Crown intends to commission a PEA on the project sometime later this year. So, you know, with Canyon Copper, I think Crown Mining is also a good one to look at in this story. Right, right. Sounds good. And uh, number three? Number three, we're going to the New York Stock Exchange uh, for a little company called Eldorado Gold. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of them, but uh, the other week their stock jumped 16.2% to $0.98 cents U.S. following a positive arbitration ruling in Greece. The company has been embroiled in a bit of a legal battle there since last September, I believe, when the Greek government objected to Eldorado's treatment plan for metal concentrates from a technical report dating back to 2014. Uh, it will now look to obtain the outstanding permits for its Scuri's Gold Copper project, but given the history of tension between the government and the company, it'll be interesting to see if and when they're actually able to obtain those permits. Uh, I know some analysts have been speculating it could take a change in government to actually get that project rolling. Uh, although a legislative election isn't actually scheduled in Greece until October 2019. And maybe uh, we have time for a bonus round? What, what, do you have any other uh, a bonus companies round. on your you mind? Know, I really need to start preparing better <laughs> for these bonus rounds. Uh, but, you know, I think I can, yeah. You know what? Let's go with a little company called NGX. Uh, their short position decreased 99% at the start of the month. And the share price is currently sitting at $1.11 on the TSX. Now, as we all know, NGX is a Lundin Group exploration company. They've got projects in Argentina and Chile. Last November, the company acquired the remaining 40% of its Jose Maria Copper Gold project from its joint venture exploration partner, Japan Oil, Gas, and Metals National. The company has said it's looking into a standalone development option at the project, which has an indicated resource of over a billion tons, grading 0.31% copper and 0.22 gram gold per ton. The company's been a little quiet over the past months, raising money, I think, and that's part of why I think it's a good one to keep an eye on. Uh, I feel like we could be hearing more out of this company soon. Right. Sounds good. Thanks, Richard. It's always a pleasure, John. See you next week. See you next week. Bye. Sorry, I didn't have much to say this time. No, it's all right. It's all right. That, that seemed good. Welcome back to the Northern Miner Podcast. You know, uh, I'm not sure if this translates through my voice or not, but I actually suffered quite a neck injury last night. Uh, apart from the kickboxing, uh, I also do, um, I think you could call it theatrical dancing, and I was at a uh, sort of a circus training facility last night, and uh, my partner and I, we have a, 
the final move of our performance, she kind of clambers up on my shoulders. So she's standing on my shoulders. I walk forward. She jumps off in front of me. I catch her, and she does the splits on the floor in front of me, and then we walk off to applause. But uh, in this case, she just jumped straight up and piked and just landed straight on my head. So it, uh, uh, so it was a massive swelling, and uh, I, I actually can't move my head in any direction at the moment. So, But anyway, we got ice storms. We got... Uh, neck injuries, but nothing stops us from putting out this podcast. <laughs> now, we have saved the biggest news uh, for the end here. This is a major story. It's completely fascinating. There are so many aspects to it. And this is the sanctions imposed by the U.S. government on the Russian oligarchs, including uh, their companies. So what has happened? I'm going to go through it in detail here. I've got a massive stack. I'm only going to go through the highlights, of course. But... Um, Let's go back to April 6th, and this is the Treasury Department, the U.S. Treasury Department, their Office of Foreign Assets Control, OFAC, and they put out a um, sanctions on seven Russian oligarchs and 12 companies, plus 17 senior Russian government officials, as well as a uh, Russian weapons trading company and their bank. Now, you all know Stephen Mnuchin. He's the Treasury Secretary in the U.S., a very, you know, very strong words here. The Russian government operates for the disproportionate benefit of oligarchs and government elites. The Russian government engages in a range of malign activity around the globe, including continuing to occupy Crimea and instigate violence in eastern Ukraine, supplying the Assad regime with material and weaponry as they bomb their own civilians, attempting to subvert Western democracies and malicious cyber activities. Russian oligarchs and elites who profit from this corrupt system will no longer be insulated from the consequences of their government's destabilizing activities. Now, yeah, this is very interesting. This is specifically targeting the Russian oligarchs, so uh, unprecedented here. The Russian oligarchs by name, let me just go through the names, and forgive, I, I do hang out with a lot of East Europeans, but, uh, but uh, forgive my pronunciations here. Uh, we've got Vladimir Bogdanov. I, Igor Rottenberg. A lot of these people are in, the, as you can imagine, the energy business in um, Russia. Igor Rottenberg, Kirill Shamilov. Now, Shamilov, probably the best known of them because he married uh, Vladimir Putin's daughter, Katerina, a few years ago. I think recently there's rumors, I'm not really sure, but of a breakup of that marriage. And another oligarch, Andrei Skok, Victor Vekelsberg, and the the big one that we're concerned with here uh, in the mining scene is Oleg Deripaska, and he is the owner of Rusel. Rusel is, um, let me see here, last year they produced 3.7 million tons of aluminum, and uh, that makes them the six, second biggest producer in the world and the biggest producer outside China. That accounts for about 17, sorry, I'm sorry, that accounts for 7% of world aluminum production and 13% of production outside of China. And, you know, China produces about half the aluminum. They also produce about 10% of the aluminum that the U.S. imports. Another issue, there's so many issues going on right now, but the U.S. imposed a 10% tariff on uh, aluminum imports to the U.S. Canada was exempted from that. Uh, It was mainly directed at China. It's gone from a 10% tariff to a complete sanction on Roussel. Now, here's a few more, uh, you know, the very harsh sanctions. So to me, it says these sanctions won't be lifted anytime soon. 
this is from the Treasury Department again. Deripaska, this is the Russell owner, Deripaska has been investigated for money laundering and has been accused of threatening the lives of business rivals, illegally wiretapping a government official, and taking part in extortion and racketeering. There are also allegations that Deripaska bribed a government official, ordered the murder of a businessman, and had links to a Russian organized crime group. So very serious allegations against Deripaska. There's two main companies here involved with Deripaska. Number one is the EN Plus Group, and they control Russell. And EN Plus Group, until last week, was traded on the London Stock Exchange. And you think of uh, Deripaska. He was at the feted at the latest Davos uh, Confab in Switzerland, and you know all that has been removed from him. Yeah, EN Plus Group is located in Jersey. So EN Group has the aluminum and the power producer as well. So let me just go through some of these um, things. And one of the terms that comes up a lot here, Deripaska is on the SDN list, and that's the Specially Designated Nationals list. So you'll hear that phrase a lot from the Office of Foreign Assets, Foreign Assets Control. You know, a lot of this really came to a head after the um, uh, that nerve agent was put on the door handle of Sergei Skripal. He was a Russian double agent and his daughter. Uh, so there was this expelling of diplomats and things like that. You also had... Russian mercenaries or government contractors, depending on whose side you're on, they attacked U.S. troops in Syria. So there's a lot of a lot of factors at play here. So these sanctions are wide-ranging. The reason behind them is wide-ranging. And another uh, aspect of this is that this was being pushed by the House of Representatives and the Senate in the U.S. This is uh, not being pushed by the Trump administration so much. The Trump administration could not overrule the uh, legislation coming from below. The EN Plus group of of uh, Deripaska, it only went public in late 2017 in London. You know, I think of Davos there, he had a lavish reception with Enrique Iglesias, stuff like that. So uh, living the high life, and as you know, these uh, Russian oligarchs make so much money within Russia and then uh, funnel the money out into Miami or New York or London. So this is really putting a clamp on, uh, on their life outside of Russia. So EN Plus Group, so Russell is traded on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, that's their primary listing, and they're in Moscow as well, and then EN Plus in London. So they're both being removed for, from stock market indices. Moody's and Fitch have both withdrawn ratings for both companies. Again, there are just so many aspects to this story, but a big one here is that Glencore, you know, they with their history of that company, with Mark Rich and everything, they, they love the high-risk, high-reward um, edgy investments. So they are a uh, substantial shareholder in Russell. I think it's like around 8% or so. They're going to have to sell their stake in Russell if they want to stay on board with the U.S. government. What Glencore has come out and said is that they are committed to complying with all applicable sanctions in its business and taking all necessary measures in order to mitigate any risks. Now, if you look at Russia's aluminum exports, there are a few that stand out here. U.S. is at 34%. Japan, 17%, South Korea, 7%, Europe, 21%, and Turkey, 17%. So uh, a lot of these exports are now at risk for Russell. Another example, um, all these little details come out when you have something this big happening, is that Russell is partnered with Rio Tinto uh, here and there through the world, especially in um, Australia and in uh, Ireland. Rio Tinto has also said... We are in the process of declaring force majeure on certain contracts and is working with its customers to minimize any disruption in supplies. 
Rio Tinto is committed to fully complying with the U.S. sanctions. So there's already a force majeure declared on um, supplying Roussel's uh, aluminum refinery in Ireland. That's the Aganish refinery, and it employs uh, 450 workers and is Europe's largest alumina refinery. I should say, if you're not familiar with the aluminum specifically, you you mine the bauxite, which is the chalky material you mine it out of the tropics, like uh, out of Suriname or Jamaica, and then you refine that into alumina, which is kind of a um, gray powder, and then you take that alumina and you can turn that into pure aluminum metal. So there's there's really three products we're talking about, bauxite, alumina, and uh, aluminum, the metal, and then... Um, the better you are at refining, the more uh, specialized products you can make for industries, you know, such as aerospace, where they need very specific uh, uh, high-quality metals. Now, what's happened to the aluminum price, as you can imagine, is just taken off because there's going to be major supply crunch here coming. And aluminum spot prices, you look at the chart, a 30-year chart, and the last five days was the biggest rise in 30 years. It's popped up around 15% or so. And then the alumina market has gone up about 30%. So uh, people are just scrambling to get alumina in particular and aluminum as well. One more aspect. There's so many aspects to this story. It's it's fascinating. And uh, it's still being played out here. The London Metal Exchange, they also have to keep Russell Metal out of their their warehouses, which are all over the world. And uh, they're the benchmark. They say they will temporarily, in quotation marks, close the doors of their warehouses to Russell Aluminum. And the suspension, that will begin on April 17th. So what's happened is you had this flood of East European aluminum go into London Metal warehouses, So, uh, and then the door is going to be shut on April 17th. So there's there's um, going to be this... I haven't looked at the numbers uh, this weekend, but uh, you're going to have this swelling of inventories on the LME and then, I suppose, a drop-off later. Overall, people say the global aluminum market will be adequately supplied because there's always been so much excess capacity in aluminum. That's one of, been one of the problems over the past decade or two, and you know why Rio Tinto had to take the big write-off on their purchase of Alcan. Canada could step in and replace a lot of this uh, Rossell aluminum that's been taken off the market. So it's good for uh, Canadian aluminum producers right off the bat. And you know, also we're not we're being exempted from this tariff into the U.S. market. And uh, one more spinoff. There's so many aspects, as I say, of this story. Shares of Alcoa, that's the biggest U.S. aluminum producer. They're up 14% on this news. And then Century Aluminum, that's the second largest U.S.-based producer after Alcoa. Their shares are up 8%. So it's not not crazy stock movement, but solid stock movement, especially for such. Um, very large companies in terms of market cap. Another aspect is you've got Russell is starting to ask their customers for euros instead of U.S. dollars because they can't trade in U.S. dollars anymore. You know, their customers may disappear. So it looks like China may be their only customer left, but at the same time, China has uh, plenty of their own aluminum that they're producing. So you really have a crisis for Russell uh, in the short term in terms of liquidity. So yeah, so let's look at the alumina markets. They've gone into backwardation, as you can imagine. Alumina is hitting an all-time high, or just about hitting an all-time high. And I've got a nice chart here from uh, Frank Holmes with uh, U.S. Global Investors. He's going he's gonna to be on the podcast next month. And uh, it's a great chart here. It's the Russian ruble and Brent crude price. 
and they've been uh, kind of in lockstep for quite a while, and now they've completely decoupled with the U.S. ruble, or sorry, with the Russian ruble dropping and uh, Brent crude rising, of course, especially with the sanctions across the energy sector, apart from the um, aluminum sector. The EN Plus Group, that's the London-traded holding company that uh, Deripaska owns, that dropped 22% on the London Stock Exchange and is now not trading. Glencore was down a bit, about 3%. What else do we have here? We have Financial Times. There's a Illumina trader saying there's panic buying in Illumina. It's a bit of a scramble. Now, one more aspect of this is the Roussel bonds. You know, they just placed a $500 million bond in January. So you're out of luck if you bought those bonds. What you're seeing is the bond yield has gone from 6% and is now at 29% or, or on Tuesday, last Tuesday, it spiked to 28%, 29%. This is a um, Bloomberg article saying that people are bu- offering 30 to $0.50 cents on the dollar for the Roussel bonds, although it's a little opaque, that the bond market. Here's an article from the Financial Times. You've got analysts and bankers telling the Times that Roussel would likely collapse without financial support from the state, that is the Russian state. Here's an article from TASS, the uh, Russian news agency, they say the government does not plan to acquire a stake in Roussel, but it will support the aluminum producer in the form of short-term liquidity or other measures under consideration. That's uh, quoting the finance minister, Anton Siluanov. I've seen different numbers here, but they say 170,000 employees, although I've seen different numbers in different publications. For now, it looks like they'll need a bailout from the Russian state. Just another example of how quickly things turn. If you're a Bloomberg uh, terminal customer, it just... Dis- Bloom, uh, Roussel and, and uh, EN Plus just dis- disappeared from your terminal. It's just like an error messages now. You also had analysts, you know, such as at Cowan or uh, BMO Capital. They were kind of scrambling to uh, recommend stocks. BMO is still recommending stocks, the uh, stock, for a day or two after the sanctions and then kind of withdrew everything entirely. And now here we are on the weekend. Probably we'll see this play out in the coming week is uh, what kind of retaliatory measures the Russian government will take against the U.S. for these sanctions. Some of them may be on American farm products. There will be an effect on cooperation in nuclear energy and space launches, as well as a possible ban on titanium sales to Boeing. So Russia's the largest titanium producer, I believe. So Boeing may need a new source for their titanium. As I was saying, this is specifically targeted to the oligarchs. So you've got other people active in Russia. For instance, uh, Kinross, they um, put out a release saying, our operations are unaffected by U.S. sanctions. Everything continues to operate according to plan, unaffected. This is a targeted sanctions. It's not against every business in Russia. Anyway, total turmoil in the aluminum market, and we'll follow that as it plays out. And that does it for this week on the Northern Miner Podcast. Thanks for joining us, and... uh, See you next week.